We'll read now of our Lord Jesus um, as we return to our readings in Luke. And Paddy is going to come and read for us. Thanks, Paddy. Good afternoon. Today's reading is going to be from Luke, uh, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a, to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. Amen. Thank you, Paddy. Now keep your Bibles open at Luke 10, 25 to 37, and there's an outline on the back of the service sheet. Let me read you a verse from the passage uh, we looked at last week, which is very much in my mind as we pray for our studies in this section of Luke's Gospel. It's uh, from the beginning of chapter 10. Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful is a promise. The harvest of people who will become Christians in this city, in this community, in the universities, in this city. The harvest is plentiful. That's a promise from the Lord Jesus. But the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to call and send out workers into his harvest field. And what he means by that are not evangelists or ministers or people who are especially gifted, but every single one of us to be sent out into the harvest fields. So let me pray to that end and that Luke will help us some more today in that commission. Lord Jesus, help us to believe the promise that the harvest is plentiful in the city, in the universities, on campuses, in our streets, in this community, in Morningside. Help us to believe that. But also to realize that the workers are few, and so we pray for workers. And may we all, each of us, be willing to be an answer to that prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, 
let me start by setting this passage in its context in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 9 to 19, which is the focus of Sundays and the focus of our small groups. We want to be working hard together across the church on these uh, passages in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 9 to 19, the theme of the section would be following the cross-bound Christ, following Christ in his mission. The immediate context, Luke 9, 51 and 56, Jesus is the cross-bound Christ. He's headed to a cross. Then Luke 9, 57 to 62, following Jesus in his mission is costly. It is costly. It is costly. We're about to refurbish this building. That is costly. And just on that, I want you to pray over the course of the next four or five days for all sorts of balls to land so that we can get on with that and that we can relocate to a venue that's close to here so we can carry on building and growing together as a church family. Pray for that this week and we'll tell you next Sunday the answer. I mean, we know the answer, we think, but we need to get over the line. This building costs a lot to refurbish, but the real cost is being open and honest about our faith in Jesus. The real cost is speaking to people about how they can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because people reject it. But remember, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. The workers, if you don't say, I can't be a worker to bring in a harvest because people will reject it. People will accept it. So Jesus is the crossbound king following Jesus and his mission is costly, Luke 9, 57 to 62. And then last week, 10, 1 to 24, Jesus commissions us into his mission. It's his mission we are commissioned into, which means it's a mission attended by the supernatural power of the Christ who is risen. His mission that we are called into is speaking the gospel which is the good news of forgiveness of sins through his death, that we might be justified before God, declared righteous. Commissioned by Jesus into his mission, that is the message we are to speak. We are to say to people that there is, through Jesus, peace with a holy God now and for all eternity, through his death and resurrection. That is the message that you and I are entrusted with. And what an important message it is. What a responsibility. What a privilege. In human life, the greatest privileges are also the greatest responsibilities. Parenting, for example, and challenges. In the spiritual life, what a responsibility it is to be entrusted with telling people that message. And yet, what a privilege. Now, we are in Luke's Gospel on Sundays and in small groups. We don't want to, to, to have too much stuff going on in our heads as God equips us 
persuades us, not by a preacher's persuasion or a small group leader's persuasion, but by Jesus' persuasion through His Word that we will take up the commission from Jesus to speak the message and be able to bring in a harvest. Now, at this point in Luke's gospel, the passage that uh, Paddy read, uh, Luke, Jesus, wants us to be absolutely certain of something that's really important, that no one can justify themselves before God. No one by who they are or by what they do or by what they say can themselves be righteous to have fellowship with God. Now, if you are a Christian and have been a Christian for some time and you think, I know that, I understand that, let me persuade you that Luke wants us not only to take that box, but to really feel it, to really understand it. So that we are absolutely clear when we're out there engaging in Jesus' mission as to what we should say and what saves. If you're not yet a Christian, and I'm sure there are people here who are not yet Christians or listening online, what you will hear from Jesus today is exactly what you need for salvation. Now, our passage 10, 25 to 37, no one can justify themselves before God. No one can be saved by who they are or by the way they live. No one. Salvation is only by grace. Grace means, the word grace means undeserved mercy of God toward us in Christ, the crossbound King, His perfect sinless life given as a sacrifice to atone for sin that we might be justified at peace with God. Now, let's look at the text in Luke's Gospel, and this is uh, one of the passages that if you can follow along in the Bible or on your phone, it will really help you to understand what Luke is recording. So verses 25 through 37. It is a conversation, a dialogue, between a lawyer, lawyer in the sense of an expert in the Jewish law, the Scriptures of the Old Testament, a conversation between this expert in the Scriptures and the Lord Jesus. And what Luke records is a repeated round of questions and answers. You see on the outline I've called it Q&A round one and Q&A round two. I stole that from Roger, but he keeps stealing stuff from me. Q&A round one. Q&A round two. Let's consider Q&A round one, verses 25 to 28. First, the man asked Jesus a question. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His motivation for asking the question is to test Jesus. There is no humility on his part. There is no real desire to listen to what Jesus says. We know that from what Luke writes here. Now, we'll return to the man's attitude to Jesus later. 
But for now, let's put that to one side and consider just the dialogue. The teacher's motives may be wrong. The, the lawyer's motives may be wrong. But there's nothing wrong with his question. I mean, this is not a trivial question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing wrong with a question, and there is nothing wrong with who he directs the question to. Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you are not a Christian, try and put yourself in this man's shoes. Here we are in Luke's eyewitness account with a man who is asking the Son of God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with a question of his own. He said to him, okay, what is written in the law, the Scriptures, the Old Testament? How do you read it? He asks the expert in the law of the Scriptures what it says. The man answers Jesus' question, and he said to him, well, this is what it says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he is right. That is the answer. And Jesus himself brings these passages together in Mark 12, for example, in response to another person's question. What is the most important commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in Matthew 22, Jesus says these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, on these two commandments hangs all the law, all the scriptures and the prophets. The man asks Jesus a question. Jesus responds with a question of his own. The man answers Jesus' question, and now the application Jesus tells the man what to do to inherit eternal life. Remember his question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do the Scriptures say the answer to that question is? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will have eternal life. If you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will have eternal life. Now, just a comment on the law, the Old Testament law, kind of a timeout. The law that says love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law is good. To love God is good. To love our neighbor is good. And the high demands of the law to love with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, shows us the worth and goodness of the law and the God whose law it is. We must not think of the law as God setting the bar impossibly high in order to spite us. God sets the bar impossibly high not to spite us, 
but to save us. To show us that we cannot justify ourselves, that we need the gracious, merciful intervention of God to save us. If you keep the law, you can have eternal life. Go and do it. Just listen to what the law requires of us to get right with God and have eternal life. Love God. Now, I love God. I don't mind saying that to you. I do love God. I do. I love God. With all my heart? with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind? Is there anything else that wrestles with God for the affections of my heart and soul and mind? I do not love Him with all my heart, with all my soul and strength and mind. Do I love Him all the time? That is what is required of us to have eternal life. Moreover, love your neighbor as yourself. That includes your enemies, your strangers. What about those we naturally love, our family and friends? Think of those you naturally love, that you love best. Do you love them all the time, without fault, without ever being selfish? That is what the law requires for eternal life, perfect love of God, perfect love of our neighbor. Now, as you sit here and conscious of the noise of silence, I always think silence is quite noisy. What is the Holy Spirit with His Word saying to you? Is He moving you to realize what you have known for some time or for the first time that you cannot save or justify yourself? Well, praise God if that is how the Spirit is moving you. But it didn't move this man. Let's go to Q&A round 2, 29 to 37. Remember, he is out to test Jesus. He's not listening he won't listen or he can't listen. But before we look at round two, let me just underscore the fact that there is a round two. Jesus is gracious. He gives the expert in the law another opportunity to understand. How many rounds are there? Two? Or three or five or one? That is for the Lord Jesus to determine. Jesus might have walked away, but he didn't. 
Jesus wants this man to understand that he cannot justify himself because Jesus wants to save him. So here we go again, verse 29, the question from the man, but he, desiring to justify himself, in other words, to say that who he was and how he lived was enough to get right with God, he said to Jesus, okay, who is my neighbor? I don't know how he said that. Was it dismissive? Who is my neighbor that I am supposed to love as I love myself? And then Jesus answers with a question of his own. But before Jesus asks his question, he tells a parable, this famous parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 20K, a steep, dangerous road, where bandits and robbers would get you if you didn't fall off the side. Notorious road. This man is robbed, left naked and half dead at the side of the road. Verse 31, now by chance a priest, that is a a Jewish priest, was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest knew from the law that he must help the man love his neighbor as himself. But he did not. He kept his distance and passed by on the other side. Verse 32, So likewise a Levite, and the Levites served to support the priests, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. He knew what he should do, that he should love this man. But he didn't. He kept his distance and passed by on the other side. But, verse 33, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and water, wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This man, this Samaritan, had compassion. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He cleansed his wounds. He soothed his pain. He put him on his animal. He took him to an inn. He stayed with him overnight. He paid the price for his ongoing care. Two denarii would have paid for two months' care. He promised to pay any other cost incurred. What extravagant care to a complete stranger and from a Samaritan to a Jew. Samaritans and Jews had a bad history. In John chapter 8, the Jewish religious leader's antagonism toward Jesus is expressed like this. John 8, 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, Jesus tells the parable to set up his question. Remember the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with a question He's about to ask the question, but before he asked the question, he told that parable. Here's the question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice 
the precise wording of the question, not who is my neighbor, but who proved to be a neighbor. We can talk all we like about who our neighbor is. But what matters is that we love them, not know who they are. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, I find this point in the narrative heartbreaking in the sense that there is, there is no doubt what the answer is. But it doesn't move the man to put his faith in Jesus. Which one proved to be the neighbor? The answer? Verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't answer any other way. He gives the right answer. He cannot bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And here's the application. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I've shown you what it means to love your neighbor. Go and do it. And the point that Jesus is making, this is what loving our neighbor looks like. If you want to justify yourself, this is what you have got to do. You see how important this is? It, it just cuts through all sorts of religious baggage that says, if I live this way, if I kind of live a decent life, if I, do, if I take out my neighbor's bins, if I look after them, if I do their shopping, all of which are really important things, I will justify myself. If you want eternal life on the basis of your own righteousness, you've got to love your neighbor like this extravagantly, costly, always, and with anyone who is your neighbor. The priest passed by on the other side, the Levi passed by on the other side. What would the lawyer do? What would we do? Or I think more pointedly, what do we do? Do we ever pass by Do we ever hold back? Do we ever, ever hold back because it is too dangerous? Do we ever, ever hold back because it is too costly? Do we ever, ever hold back because it is too embarrassing? Do we ever, ever limit our love? And you see, all that the Lord Jesus is doing, he's not trying to trick us or spite us. He's trying to save us. By exposing to us who we are as humans, why we need him. No one can justify themselves. And this expert in the law, this religious leader, is a lost man. He is a doomed man. He is not saved. And there is only one man who has lived, who in his humanity 
was justified before God. There is only one man who has ever lived who loves God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, and with all his mind. There is only one man who loves his neighbor as himself. And the Samaritan in the parable, if he is any one, he is only Jesus. Only Jesus loves us perfectly, costly love, sacrificial love, extravagant love, love for those who are undeserving of his love, love for those, that is us, who by dint of his perfect humanity and our sinful humanity are estranged from one another. Salvation is only possible by grace, the undeserved mercy of God towards us in Christ, the cross-bound King. His perfect sinless life, his life of perfect love for God, his life of perfect love for his neighbor, given as a sacrifice to atone for our sin, that we might be declared justified before God. Now, I wonder, in case anyone is thinking this, is Jesus saying that we should not love our neighbor, that it doesn't matter? Well, he's not saying that. Of course he's not. And earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, listen to what he said, Jesus. Give to everyone who begs. As you wish what others would do to you, do so to them. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Expect nothing in return. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Of course we are to love our neighbor. But the point Jesus is making here in Luke 10 is that we cannot justify ourselves by claiming our love for God or our love for our neighbor. We cannot love our neighbor as we ought. We cannot love God as we ought. And it takes that to bring us into fellowship with God. And it took Christ who loved God perfectly and who loved us perfectly to stand in our place to give us his righteousness. And as we come to the end of this little dialogue, all Jesus requires of us, if we are not yet Christians, is that we repent, which means turn from thinking that we can justify ourselves and believe in Him. 
And if you do that, or if you are at the point of that, all the weight of the world comes off your shoulders and is borne by Him. And you have eternal life. Now, as we close, just a couple of applications with respect to the wider section in Luke's gospel. Remember that Jesus is commissioning us into his mission. He is commissioning every single one of us to go out and to tell the gospel, speak it, tell the gospel. On the campuses of this city, where we live, our flatmates, our families, where we work, our neighbors physically, and this community, which is why we are refurbishing this building, that it might be fit for this purpose, to go and tell the gospel. That's why we need a fancy kitchen, not just for student lunch. For all the things that we can do with that, so we can tell the gospel. Two brief comments as we close. As we go out in mission, God's commission is to every one of us. Remember, and we heard this last week in the briefing of Jesus when he sent out the 72, people will reject the gospel. People will accept it, but people will reject it. People like this lawyer will be very happy to have a chat with you but they will not accept what Jesus says. And if you invest in somebody like this and they walk away, that is not easy. And you understand what cost means. Or if they mock you, or if you discover when you are in conversation with them, all they are wanting to do is test you trip you up. Jesus is realistic about rejection. But remember the promise, and we'll see this fulfilled in numerous ways as we go through Luke's gospel, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. And then, final application. What does it say to us as a church about mission corporately, individually, to those of you in CUs in the city, let me just walk you through the logic again of this section of Luke's gospel. Following the cross-bound Christ, Jesus is the cross-bound Christ. The cross is the heart of his mission. Following Jesus in his mission is costly. There is cost, real cost. Jesus commissions us all into his mission, which is speaking the gospel. The good news of forgiveness of sins through his death, that we might be justified before God, eyes on me. Let me say that again in case we missed it. 
He commissions you into his mission, which is speaking the gospel, telling people they can have peace with God through the forgiveness of their sins, through the death of Jesus, and they cannot, cannot, cannot justify themselves by their background, their heritage, their name, or what they do. And Luke wants us to be really, really clear that no one can justify themselves. If we're not clear, we're not going to tell people what they need to hear. And as Luke gently builds us up and sends us out, let me finish with that verse. The harvest is plentiful. That's a promise. On campus, in Morningside, in the city where we live, we don't know in whose life God is at work. We're going to sing that in a minute. You alone can see. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The problem is not the harvest. The problem is the lack of workers. And workers does not mean an evangelist. Or those of you in university, when you have an event suite, you'll have a speaker, which is helpful. But when Jesus means workers, he means all of us all the year. And what a wonderful thing it would be if we all accept that Jesus is commissioning me into his mission to speak this message and that he will afford us the greatest joy on this earth, which is to take in the harvest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this really clear passage in Scripture teaching us that no one can justify themselves. Help us to believe that. Let it influence how we engage in mission. Clarify what we tell people. And Lord, if there is anyone listening who has come to terms this morning or this afternoon with the fact that they cannot justify themselves and need to turn to Jesus Christ for their salvation. Help them to do it now. To say, I need you, Jesus, to forgive my sins, to take the punishment that I deserve, and to give to me your righteousness so that I am justified before God, at peace with him, with everlasting life. For Jesus' sake. Amen.